Hello there, and welcome to episode three of Art Histories, show number three, and you're back with me, your host, Olivia. Who knew we'd make it this far? Certainly not me, that's for sure. This is the first of these introductions I've recorded since releasing the series Into the World on my 23rd birthday, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for all the wonderful comments and encouraging feedback I've received in that time. I can honestly say I wasn't expecting such a warm reception, or even any kind of reception, to this little project of mine, and your words have all stuck with me. Someone who knows a thing or two about the power of words is my guest for episode three. I am beyond thrilled this week to introduce you to the delightful Izzy Tucker. I'm firmly of the belief that anything can be made into a story as long as you have a connection to it. Like literature to me is defined as a piece of writing that makes you feel something whether that's happiness anger sadness whatever if it's good literature it will make you feel something whenever i have to describe izzy to someone who hasn't met her yet i say that she is the human embodiment of sunshine and in over four years of knowing her i still haven't found a more fitting description for her than that Izzy is my resident story keeper. She works for the nation's favourite bookshop and has been introducing people to their favourite novels, poetry and plays for over six years of her life. She's intuitive and inventive and constantly finding new ways to connect with others through her love of literature. Last spring, she launched a bookstagram that's a book Instagram for those not in the know, and on it shares recommendations, reviews and challenges for her followers to engage with. I'm so excited for this episode as Izzy's Choices introduced some new mediums to the show, and I got to enjoy the company of one of the warmest and loveliest humans in my orbit. Just to let you know, there are references to mental health issues, including suicide, in all three segments of the show. So if that's something you'll find triggering, please skip this episode. Without further ado, let's meet Izzy. Hello, Izzy. Hello. <laughs> um, welcome to Art Histories and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. We are on episode three. We're nearly halfway through the series. Uh, the sun is shining, or it was shining, and we've got an amazing show lined up. Um if you're just here for Izzy and you haven't listened before, I don't blame you, but you might not know how this works. So this podcast aims to provide a raw, intimate study of the power of the arts by inviting one guest on a week to talk about three pieces of art. And when I say art, I mean music, books, artists, anything like that, really, that have moulded them or shaped the course of their lives. Thank you for putting your afternoon and your favourite works of art in my hands, Izzy. Are you ready to get going? I am very ready to get going. <laughs> Good. It's standard fare at this point in the series, but before we get into your three picks today, I like to talk to each of my guests about how I know them. It's a little self-indulgent perhaps, but it's nice for the listeners to know what they're signing up for before we launch into the show. So Izzy, 
How do we know each other? We know each other from university, the University of Warwick, to be exact. We (laughs) studied the same course for three whole years. Mm. Um, But I think it was drama ball in our first year that was the proper bonding moment. (laughs) Yes, Um, I've got pretty much the same thing. We met at university. um, You were one of the first people that I properly connected with in my Mm. first year at uni. And we have one of my favourite friendship origin (laughs) stories ever. Being the the shy, retiring first year that I was, I wasn't very great at putting myself out there. Um, So I think you're right. It did take until probably about the drama ball in the spring of our first year. So four Mm. years ago. Um, Oh, God. (laughs) I know. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, I was feeling ill at the end of the ball and you weren't keen on staying until the after party. So these two girls who had previously only exchanged pleasantries got the bus back from the ball to campus together and walked barefoot up Leamington Spa Parade because trekking in heels is wildly uncomfortable. Wildly. <laughs> wildly. We spent the whole bus ride home chatting and I remember privately thinking at the time how warm and open you were. Um, I was instantly drawn to you. We cemented our connection in second year. And since then, you know, I've stayed at your house. You've stayed at mine. We've celebrated milestone birthdays, been to Scotland together. And we've had many a late night heart to heart. Yes. Which is lovely. I didn't realise I'd be tearing up at this time, honestly. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, Intimacy comes so naturally to you in your friendships and how you engage with the arts. So I knew you'd be a perfect guest for the cosy feel of art histories. Um, Not least because you work closely with literature daily in your job and have opinions on just about everything. (laughs) (laughs) So many opinions. (laughs) So many. Your passion is so inspiring to me and I've been a long admirer of your wonderful bookstagram page, a side project that suits you down to the ground. So I'm so excited to talk to you about the works that have wormed their way into your heart. Oh, I'm so excited, honestly. This talking about books in particular, but art in general, hands down one of my favourite things to do. So this is a dream come true. (laughs) Are you ready to get going? Absolutely. Let's dive right in. So the first of your choices today is the author V.E. Schwab. Am I pronouncing that right? I believe so. I believe that's how you pronounce it. (laughs) Only time will tell. We're taking kind of a leap of faith today with all of the pronunciation. So please do bear with us. Um, Who is an American fantasy author best known for the Shades of Magic series and her 2013 novel Vicious alongside a host of children's and young adult fiction books published under the name Victoria Schwab. Um, And we're specifically going to talk about her standalone fantasy novel, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue today. Consuming an entirety of an author's repertoire in about a week would have been awfully ambitious, um, (laughs) even for my standards. And I do like to hold myself to quite high standards for art histories. Mm -hmm. So instead, I set about reading The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, her most recent standalone work, which was published in October 2020, and the book that you specifically recommended to me. This is really exciting because it's our first literature-based pick of the show so far, which seems odd to me, seeing as this show is all about stories. You know, the stories we discuss, the stories we write through our love for them, and the stories unravelling themselves on the podcast. So Izzy, 
I really wanted to know before we get into things, where does your story with Schwab begin? Did you find Addie first or did you discover her through her other works? So I first started reading V.E. Schwab a few years ago. I read her Vicious and Vengeful duology, um, which is brilliant. It's about superheroes, uh, villains who think they're heroes, heroes who think they're villains. It's wonderful. Um, And I read those and then I didn't pick up any more of hers for a while just because I I have so many books to read that Mm. I just hadn't done it. And then last year during the first lockdown me and one of my friends wanted to start a kind of book club and to read a book together that we could talk about and we both wanted to read the Shades of Magic series mm-hmm. and so I picked up Dark Shade of Magic and it was I'd thought I fell in love and then I, I yeah. hadn't realised that she was the same author who'd written Vicious and Vengeful until I read oh, A Darker okay. Shade of Magic. I finished it and then it was other works by and I saw Vicious mm-hmm. and Vengeful and I was like, oh my God, hang on, it's the same author. And so from there, I read all of the Darker Shade of Magic series, her uh, City of Ghosts, uh, her children's novels mm-hmm. and her other duology, The Dark Vault, um and I bookmarked Addie in my calendar for when it was being released I the from the blurb I was immediately it hadn't come out at that time yeah it was so this was all happening during summer so I want to say around June time and Addie came Mm -hmm. out in October so I bookmarked it in my calendar and then about a week before the release date I went into work uh where I work at a bookshop and there was a lovely proof copy of Addie waiting for me from the publishers and it was like the clouds had parted. I will never (laughs) not be impressed by the fact that you get sent (laughs) things from publishers. That to me is just the most amazingly cool thing ever. It is a (laughs) massive perk of the job honestly. Mm. It's something I'm very very grateful for. Um, It's definitely a I'd say it's definitely a privilege to work with books and Mm. to be sent copies of books in advance in exchange for a review it's so wonderful um Mm. and Addie was one that I had not expected to be sent so I was absolutely over the moon when I got it um but I don't think I realized when I started reading it how much this book was going to impact me and how much I was going to fall in love with it I think I don't think I realized either really um this seems a good time to introduce it so the invisible life of Addie LaRue is Schwab's most recent standalone work and it follows one woman Adeline LaRue who makes an ill-fated deal with the darkness to live forever and is doomed to be forgotten by everyone who meets her Addie flees her home in 17th century France and her story will take us to Paris Florence Chicago New Orleans and London playing out over continents centuries spilling into literature and into art until nearly 300 years later in a bookstore in New York Addie meets a young man who remembers her it's a bit of an epic at nearly 550 pages long and an incredibly ambitious novel in the way it covers time periods and locations Um, Schwab seems to have an endlessly adaptable narrative voice in that we as readers are easily transported to these different places and believe we are there without ever losing Addie's voice. 
there really is so much that this book has to say. <laughs> I mean, I went into it thinking it was a fantasy and I'm not the best equipped with the genre, so I wasn't really sure what to expect, but there's so much more to it than that. However, mm. I do think we really have to start with speaking about Addie because in this novel, we have one of the most compelling female characters I've ever come across in contemporary mm. literature. Schwab really inhabits her and the novel is like stepping into her soul, mm -hmm. despite the fact that it's not written in a first person narrative. So mm -hmm. I completely and utterly fell for her. Um, is she a large part of the appeal of the book for you? Um, definitely. I would say that Addie is such an amazing character partly because she is so flawed. I think it's easy, particularly with our female characters, to expect perfection and yes. to expect them to be everything, like, amazing. Addie mm -hmm. is, in my eyes, Addie is fundamentally a selfish person. She wants her life to be her own. Yeah. She wants her life to be her own. She wants to live her life for herself. Um one of the things you notice is she relates things back to herself she wants she wants to be remembered and i think selfishness is something that would inherently come with being forgotten when you're forgotten mm -hmm. all you have is yourself and mm. i love that about her i think that's so interesting in a character that she is unashamedly selfish and that's something nice. That it does, obviously, I'm very aware of spoilers because I'd want people to experience this book for the first time. But mm -hmm. over the course of the book, she does experience character development. But there's always that part of her that, because for 300 years, she's only had herself and she's had to rely on herself. Mm. And I think oh, with that, you can't help but be a little bit selfish. Yes, I think that's that's a really interesting point. It's something that I, I didn't kind of touch upon, that she is a selfish character, but it's about kind of reframing that word selfish mm. because I think it has a lot of negative connotations, particularly for women um, who maybe at the time, you know, in 17th century France, mm. as a woman, your life was essentially not really your own. Exactly. Um, it belonged to your family and then your husband and then your children. It's so pertinent reading it now um, in a society where we as women are supposedly free to choose. We are, we are able to choose mm. ourselves, but this word selfish, it still has such negative connotations but I'm glad yeah. that you you said it was in a positive way because mm -hmm. when I was reading it I saw so much of you in Addie <laughs> her desire to squeeze as much wonderment and joy out of life as mm. possible her innate curiosity and her love of reading obviously yeah. um it would be easy to think that Schwab swapped you out for a character with a different name so where does Addie end and you begin do you kind of relate to those quote-unquote selfish aspects of her personality like do you want to kind of have more autonomy of your own life I think that I definitely do relate to Addie in some ways but I find it really interesting mm. that you said that you saw me and Addie because to me mm. Henry was the character who I saw the most of myself in oh interesting and interestingly um V.E. Schwab has said on many occasions that Henry is herself in the book that's who she wrote the most of herself mm. into. Um, so I think Addie is a brilliant protagonist. As you said, she's fascinating. She wants she wants to live every aspect of life that she can. And mm. that's something in the book when, because with being forgotten, it's, you can't get as a job, you can't earn any money. Mm. And initially that's something she struggles with. Just surviving takes up most of her time. And she still has this desire to live like to live life to the fullest and 
she does she does so many things and I think that's definitely something I do relate to wanting to see all the culture the world has to offer um Mm. to go and she I mean she sees the paintings in the Louvre as they're hung she goes and talks to Voltaire in the yeah it's incredible it's wonderful and I definitely relate to that aspect of Addy but I think Henry is the character who I connected the most with Mm. he's the one who I saw most of myself in so I found that really interesting that you said you saw so much of me and Addy because Mm. I think it's it's probably down to perspective as well I think um when you spend a lot of time inhabiting your own brain um you know there are there are definitely parts of you that are visible to other people but um not to you or parts of you that are visible to you and not to other people and absolutely you know it's it's all about that how much you see how much other people see and I don't know maybe there's something that we can all take in in both of Mm. in both of the characters because they are kind of they are framed as foils of one another and Mm. Henry is this kind of beautiful fragile I I don't know how to describe him in words it's really hard but he is a bit of an enigma I think Mm. and again without I'm trying not to spoil anything the nature of Henry's life and certain things he has done in his life means that he's always viewed how people want to view him and Mm. he himself is more unknowable as a person until Addy comes along. Initially when you meet Henry all you know is that he remembers Addy Mm. and that's all you have about him and you immediately frame him in your mind with that knowledge of he remembers Addy, he has to be special, there's something different about him that causes him to remember Addy but Mm. then as you read more from Henry's perspective you learn it's not actually that he's special it's how ordinary he is as well that makes Mm. him he has the things he wants in life are the things that so many of us want in life he has dreams and hopes and struggles and particularly emphasis on the struggles that everyone can relate to if that makes sense (laughs) Yes, that desire to be loved and (laughs) fully appreciated by people um, and kind of have a bit more control over how you're seen as well. I think that was his main, his main struggle as a character was that he Mm. didn't like how other people perceived him or, or didn't perceive him. And it was that, that need to be noticed and, and wanted. And I think we all have that kind of desire as as humans to be recognized for Mm. for kind of who who we are so you know we started off saying that this book is a fantasy but Mm. really there are so many achingly human themes Mm. and you know Schwab writes with such a knowing but light touch you know the novel is an incredible blend of the ordinary and the supernatural and Mm. fantasy elements are kind of weaved into the story in a way that almost makes it magical realism which is one of my favorite genres to read what would you say to people who criticise fantasy as a genre, deeming it too escapist, given that this book touches on such like realistic-seeming ideals and deals with very human issues? I think that, yes, fantasy is escapism, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Escapism, it allows you to explore very, very human struggles, human desires, human wishes through a lens that you might not get in a realistic setting. Addie's curse means that she has lived for 300 years whilst being forgotten. And 
the fear of being forgotten, of not leaving a mark on the world is something that a lot of people struggle with like the idea of who will remember remember me when I'm gone what will I have Mm. to show that I was here that I lived on this earth and that I loved and was loved Mm. and putting it in this fantastical setting well a very real setting but a fantastical situation it just allows these ideas to be explored in much greater depth than it would be otherwise Addie's desire to leave a mark on the world, to have someone remember her name, to have someone know she was there, is something that you. I don't think you could explore in a non-fantasy book. I don't think you could do it in that mm. same powerful, moving way. I remember when I first started reading this book, it was about, God, 50 pages in, that I had to put it down and just have a moment because I was realising how closely I was connecting to Addie, to the narrative, yes. to the characters. And I just remember I wanted to kind of pick it up and take it into my heart and keep it there for a while because mm. it just was articulating all these things that I had always had in the back of my mind but never really knew how to put them into words. Mm-hmm. And that happened so many times. There's one, the moment I knew it was going to be my absolute favourite book of all time. I can tell you the exact page number was page 278. I'd been loving it until then. 278. But in the UK edition of Addie LaRue, page 278, Mm -hmm. there is a quote that I had to put the book down and just take a walk. (laughs) I was... That's that's quite a big deal for you as well, because as someone who reads almost aggressively for her job <laughs> and has to, has yeah. to read and consume all of these stories, um, it would be quite easy to assume that you could race through one and then move on to the next one. Obviously, I mm-hmm. know that each one you give equal attention, but to hear mm-hmm. that you had to like pause so many times throughout reading this because um, yeah. it's something I had to do as well when I was reading it I did have to stop and and think about what I was reading and then return to it um, mm. and, and just fully take that in I think it's it's quite rare that you find a book where mm. consuming it is almost like the worst thing you can do because then you're going to leave it behind um, yeah. and you become <laughs> very aware that it's a it's like a transitional thing um and that your time with it is is kind of running out yeah that's definitely the way I think working with books on a daily basis I'm I'm constantly reading I have such a large pile of unread books in my room and I'm constantly have something on the go and it does mean that sometimes worlds blur together you read a lot of the same kind of thing and it is easy to just kind of go from book to book to book and not make any connection with the characters but I think that's the mark of a really beautiful book is when you just have to take a moment to stop reading to understand it's only happened for me in recent years a few times um with A Little Life and Addie LaRue are the two that spring to mind Mm -hmm. most recently oh and um Homegoing by Yagi Asi those are three that spring to mind of me having to actually physically put the book down and take a moment. No, it's interesting that you touched on the idea of, of fantasy kind of being the only way that you can frame these quite ordinary issues, which is not something that we would normally think about, but the worry about being forgotten or about being 
not being remembered in the way that you want or um you know not forming connections that end up defining your life um, Mm. with the people that you surround yourself with and things like that it's something that I suppose we spend a lot of time thinking about as humans but we don't think that it could be translated into a narrative like it's not worthy of being put into a story and I think by by adding these supernatural elements by by giving it a sense of jeopardy I suppose um kind of Schwab's taken this and 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 made us and made us see these things that we're thinking about on a daily basis in a narrative which is so healing yeah I think that I'm firmly of the belief that anything can be made into a story as long as you have a connection to it like literature to me is defined as a piece of writing that makes you feel something whether that's happiness anger sadness whatever if it's good literature it will make you feel something and Addie made me feel all the things (laughs) it made me feel every single everything everything every single thing we felt it all (laughs) that's something I've actually found with V.E. Schwab's writing in general I think she is a beautiful author oh it's wonderful but she has a way of writing prose that never for me never strays into purple prose I think it's very easy for writers to get caught up in this trying to make simple emotions overly beautiful and overly fluffy and overly Mm -hmm. everything and it's a very fine line to write as an author to walk as an author being too blunt and too purple prosy and for me V.E. Schwab treads that line beautifully because there are so many points in the novel where this was one thing I noticed is that there's a lot of um she uses a lot of short sharp sentences Mm. um and there are really so much there's really so much packed into those tiny little bits that Mm. you you get so much about her character through them you know a lot Mm. of the I say chapters, but they're not really chapters. They feel, you know, it's more like little episodes in her yeah, life, I suppose. Yeah, little vignettes kind of thing. <laughs> yes, vignettes. That's the word for it. Um, <laughs> you know, they'll end with like a, a four-word line um, or two short sentences and they kind of say everything that needs to be said. Mm. Um, and, and as a reader, you kind of intuitively pick up on everything that's going on mm. within those words. And... It's really an ode to the the power of words and using your words wisely. And that Mm. doesn't necessarily mean using all of the words. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's about kind of selectively picking the ones that kind of communicate what you want to communicate the best. Exactly. Like there's one um, section where Addie is talking about whether what she feels is love. Mm -hmm. And it says something like she thinks she loves him she wants it to be love and this is at the point where you remember the bit you're talking about yeah and this is the point where you fully believe she should be in love with the character she is talking about but just that one Mm. word of she wants it to be love Mm. puts that idea of wait is it what what is going through Addie's mind right now but that one sentence tells you so much Mm. and I just I just think the way Schwab uses language is phenomenal like such little turns of phrase (laughs) um Mm -hmm. something you mentioned which i wanted to talk about was addy leaving traces of herself in art there is such a love of art and culture running throughout this book um Mm. 
mm-hmm. kind of segments of the book are divided up by references to pieces of art that you can find links to Addie in or um, references to Addie in where she's engaged with people and they've kind of remembered little bits of, of mm-hmm. connection but not actually remembered her and she's kind of wormed her way into these pieces that way and left mm-hmm. her mark. Do you think as creatives we're constantly striving to do the same, you know, leave bits of ourselves behind in, in bits of art, bits of culture? Or for you, is it more about leaving bits of yourself behind in people? Because Addie leaves herself behind in pieces of art because she can't do that with people. Um, and I wanted to know which of those was more appealing to you. I think that when you're a creative, and I think even when you're a person, you are unconsciously leaving parts of yourself wherever you go and whoever you interact with little like I know that I pick up mannerisms from people that I don't know Mm -hmm. I'm doing and they are unconsciously leaving a part of themselves with me Mm -hmm. and I think one of the beautiful things about Addie is the opening scene I can talk about this because it's the opening scene of the book it's not really a spoiler (laughs) (laughs) um the opening scene of the book is Addie working on a song with a boy called Toby And what I think is beautiful about that is she is relying on him remembering the song to remember her. She is relying on the melody that they've created together for staying in his brain when he wakes up and doesn't remember who she is. She relies on him finding scraps of lyrics that they wrote down together and he just thinks he wrote it and doesn't remember when he wrote it. She, Addie relies on people finding these scraps of herself and turning it into art. And I think that is something so beautiful, but also tragic that you Mm. are waiting for someone to find pieces of yourself and put them into art. And whilst I can, Addie obviously doesn't have the choice to do that with people. She doesn't have that option. Mm. And... I, that is one of the reasons I kind of think that rather than leaving yourself an artist with people because mm. you see how sad it is for Addie and how painful it is for her. She hears the song later in the book that they worked on together and it's a really painful moment for her because she, this boy who she felt things for and did love really, but she can't ever have that connection with him because he'd see her and he wouldn't remember that she's the one who came up with that one bit of the melody or who came up with that one line. He doesn't remember her. Mm. And it's almost because I read all this about Addie and how painful it was for her that I almost place now more value in people remembering who you are because you see how Addie... And I do think Addie... the in the book Addie she V.E. Schwab is talking about the importance or the importance of the desire that people feel to leave themselves behind Mm -hmm. and I do think that's something that a lot of people will like still want to do the idea of like having a piece of art you made exist long after you're gone is a really powerful image um but equally I think it's an ode to the tragedy of Addie is that she can't have people remember her yeah and I think maybe one of the points that Schwab's trying to make is that we already are leaving parts of ourselves behind as humans, you know, every day in those people that we love. And I suppose by showing, by showing us the impact of not having that ability, um, 
Schwab's trying to kind of highlight the the beauty of it. Um, and it's interesting, actually, that, that reading it kind of made you appreciate that so much more because it is hard as as people who studied creative degrees, you know, we're constantly feeling like we should be putting content out there or yeah. making things or starting podcasts, <laughs> leaving our mark on the world. Mm-hmm. And really, it's something that we're doing every day and mm. we're doing right now with each other. And we've been doing over the course of our friendship. So and it's such a special book in that it it kind of forces you to mm-hmm. examine that and think about mm-hmm. it and kind of makes you appreciate it a bit more. So I kind of had one last thing that I wanted to ask you, and we could talk about this book all day because there are so many different facets to it. Um, (laughs) But instead, I just encourage anyone who listens to go and read it because it really is so wonderful. Um, I know that you've annotated this book to within an inch of its life. I've seen your copy. It is well loved. It is one of four, in case anyone was wondering. I do have four copies of this book. It's a little bit mad. (laughs) Do you have a favourite quote? I do have a favourite quote. Do you want to share it with us? I will. I've got a... Well, I've got kind of... The one I'm going to share is the one on page 278 because this Mm -hmm. is the one that made me... um, it's all right if I read a little bit just to add up to it because yeah no, go for it yeah <laughs> um so I literally have written at the start of this this is my favorite chapter in all of literature a boy is born with a broken heart the doctors go in and piece it back together make it whole and the baby is sent home lucky to be alive they say he is better now that he can live a normal life and yet as he grows up he is convinced something is still wrong inside The blood pumps, the valves open and close, and on the scans and screens everything functions as it should. But something isn't right. They've left his heart too open, forgotten to close back up the armour of his chest, and now he feels too much. Other people would call him sensitive, but it is more than that. The dial is broken, the volume turned all the way up. Moments of joy register as brief but ecstatic. Moments of pain stretch long and unbearably loud. Henry is 14 the first time he steals a swig of his father's liquor just to turn the volume down. He is 16 when he swipes two pills from his mother's cabinet just to dull the ache. He is 20 when he gets so high that he thinks he can see the cracks along his skin, the places where he's falling apart. His heart has a draught. It lets in light. It lets in storms. It lets in everything. And that is the moment I just... That is the moment I had to put the book down and go on a long walk because (laughs) I've got chills (laughs) I just reading that page that idea of being too open of feeling everything so much that it almost hurts just got to me on such an almost physical level Mm. I yeah that I'm almost a bit emotional reading it I cry every time I read this book honestly I've read this book about five times now and since October and I cry every single time there are literal tear marks staining certain pages but that quote particularly the last little bit about his heart has a draft Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how much I love that quote I think everyone has had a moment in their life where everything just felt too overwhelming particularly after the last year that we have had Mm -hmm. everyone's nerves are a little bit raw everyone feels everything that little bit much more Mm -hmm. and 
when I read this in October of last year, this was just before the second lockdown. Yeah. And I'd been, I was back at work dealing with members of the public and it just hit a very real place. And I am not like Henry in that I've not, I didn't get drunk at 14. I didn't swipe my mother's <laughs> pills. But really, is he? <laughs> but wanting to find a way to make everything feel okay again mm. and to make everything just go quiet just for a minute so you can have a moment of relief is something that after the last year I feel a lot of people can relate to. Mm. And I think V.E. Schwab's writing captured that beautifully. I think it's quite obvious from the tone of our chat, but I completely and utterly fell for this book. Um, I'm not sure if there's something in it being my first literature choice on the show, but I loved every part of it. The story, you know, the fleshed out complex characters, the supernatural world that Schwab constructs. I don't think any part of it suffered in favour of another, which you can sometimes find with literary texts. So I think I just wanted to say... And I say it to everyone, but I mean it every time. Thank you so much for introducing this to me because it's a book I'm going to reread um, and think about you when I read it. <laughs> Honestly, you are so welcome. Part of my job is recommending books to people. That's literally what I'm paid to do. I am paid to tell you which books you are like. But mm. this one always feels different whenever I talk about it because I feel like if you read it, you'll under this is again sounding so pretentious so i apologize but i feel like if you read this book you'll understand me as a person a little bit better it's well, something there you go <laughs> that's that's so... the ticket to that's the ticket to izzy <laughs> so the next of your choices today is vincent van gogh who is an artist but more specifically you've led me to two of his works mm -hmm. um the starry night and Wheatfield with crows mm -hmm. now van gogh is hugely hugely famous in the art world if you haven't heard of him i don't oh, what know what you're doing <laughs> i don't know what you've been doing um but he will probably be a lot of people's introduction to art in the most traditional sense he's a dutch post-impressionist painter who posthumously became one of the most influential far-reaching figures in the history of western art in just a decade he created around 2,100 artworks, including around 860 oil paintings, um, and most of these are from the last two years of his life. Mm -hmm. You can generally tell if something's a Van Gogh piece because it's got bold colours and dramatic and expressive brushwork, and the general techniques he employs include landscapes, still lifes, portraits, and self-portraits. Um, however, this success didn't come during his own life and he committed suicide at 37 after years of struggling with mental illness. So, this is an exciting first for art histories because despite the show's name, we've never actually had traditional <laughs> art as a choice before. Yeah. So I'm really excited to explore a new medium on this podcast and what better way to begin than with Van Gogh, mm -hmm. one of the most famous artists of all time. It was in my plans to go to the Van Gogh Museum in an Amsterdam trip I had planned, so I would have seen Wheatfield with Crows, oh. and I'm lucky enough to have been to MoMA in New York, where mm -hmm. Starry Night lives, so I wish I remember seeing it, but I probably have <laughs> at some point. <laughs> I'm um, so jealous, honestly. I Seeing Starry Night in person, the original, is 
so high up on my bucket list, it's ridiculous. <laughs> the Starry Night is an oil-on-canvas painting which Van Gogh brought to life in June 1889 and depicts the view from the east-facing window of his asylum room at Saint-Rémy-de-Provence, probably butchering <laughs> that, just before sunrise, with the addition of an imaginary village. It is widely regarded as his magnum opus, or greatest work, and it's one of the most recognised paintings in Western art. It's a hugely, hugely famous work, so I'm really interested to find out what you take from it. So, how did you find Starry Night, and how long has it been a part of your artistic vocabulary? Do you remember the first time you saw it? So, the first time I saw Starry Night, I am absolutely convinced it was in an IT lesson back at my primary school. And I just okay. remember, one of my te- teachers had it as their background, and I just remember kind of seeing it. And I was I was very young at this point, like seven or something. So I don't really remember much other than thinking, oh, that's pretty. And I think Van Gogh is so ingrained in our culture is it, that you will definitely come across you'll have you will have seen a van gogh even if you don't know it was a van gogh mm. his sunflowers starry nights his self-portraits i think it's almost impossible to go through life and not see one because he yeah. is so prolific um initially my love of starry night was just a surface level thing and i think that's that's absolutely fine art Mm -hmm. oftentimes art theory and all that kind of thing it can get quite complex and quite tricky and if you're not an artist like myself who cannot draw for toffee it's awful (laughs) (laughs) i all the ideas of color theory and brush strokes often elude me so to me i saw a pretty painting and i loved it And then I remember when, oh gosh, it was year five or year seven. I can't quite remember. There were two French trips when I was at school and I can't remember which one this fell on. But we went to an art museum and they had a copy of Starry Night. At the time, I did not know it was a copy because I was a child and did not know the original was in New York. So (laughs) I thought I was seeing the original of (laughs) Starry Night. And I just remember standing in front of it and I recognised it. And I just remember getting strangely emotional about it and just how beautiful it was. And it was all these shapes and circles that had been used in uh, in a new way to me. I hadn't seen it before. Mm. And it was a real introduction of what art could be. I think before yes. then, a lot of time what I'd seen had just been still life, standard portraits, which were beautiful. But to me, Starry mm. Night was a new way of art being made. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's interesting because a lot of our early experiences of art are, like you said, still life. And they tend to be things that you would never normally think of putting on a canvas at that age, you know, bowls of fruit and vases. And it's not really something that you can easily engage with at that age, or it wasn't something that I found easy to engage with Mm. at that age. But I suppose putting something as beautiful and fantastical as the night sky Mm. on canvas it's something that you know when you're a child you look up to the sky and you see the stars and you count the stars and it's it's Mm. kind of done that put it on canvas like an experience that you could relate to but it's made it even more fantastical Mm. and slightly strange in the shapes and the colors used they're not entirely recognizable Mm -hmm. but you can still kind of see the world in them 
Um, it's interesting that you said it is, you know, everywhere you look, this this painting. It's been appropriated and reproduced on clothes, mm. shoes, bags, interiors. You name it, Van Gogh is probably on it or in it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you make it belong to Izzy? So I think art is something that belongs to everyone. I think mm. that's what makes me love it so much is that when you consider as well Van Gogh's history and how he never sold Mm -hmm. a painting in his lifetime, he was considered a failure. He wasn't seen as a success in any way. And now he's one of the most well-renowned artists in the world, in history even. And I think it was when I learnt about his life that I connected to Starry Night even more. I Mm. loved it on its own as a painting. But when I learned about Van Gogh's backstory, that's when it became special to me. Van Gogh was so underappreciated. And I know it's easy to be like, oh, people don't appreciate me now. I'm like in the wrong time kind of thing. You hear so (laughs) many people say that. But he is the case of that literally happening. He died thinking he was a failure and that just hit me in my chest when I found out about that and it kind Mm. of links back to Addy as well the idea of dying and not leaving a mark and he died thinking he wasn't leaving a mark behind and look at what happened I think there's something almost aspirational about Mm. it as well it's that idea that it is so incredibly sad that he lived his life Mm. thinking that the art he'd made hadn't changed anybody or hadn't impacted anyone Mm. and I suppose it's it feels almost glib to call it a success story but you you could kind of see it as that when you think about how far reaching his works are now and how widely loved they are um I think there's a little bit of hope in it for people it's quite a hopeful piece in that sense Mm. one of my favorite things to read is Van Gogh's letters to his brother and in one of the letters he said to his brother um To put it no higher, my God, how beautiful that is. Shakespeare, who is as mysterious as he? His language and his way of doing things are surely the equal of any brush trembling with fever and emotion. And to know that Van Gogh saw Shakespeare as the epitome of what you can do with art Mm. and with emotion and know that he is now on the same level and people see that emotion in his work and they see that passion in his work but he didn't know that he'd achieved that in his lifetime. It's so tragic. And I I get sad and emotional every time I think about it. I find art one of the most interesting mm. mediums and particularly talking about it on this show is that it's one of those things that context really can hugely influence how you approach it. There's mm. definitely something to be said for enjoying it aesthetically. And I think it, you know, it's... Mm. It shouldn't be an elitist medium in that Absolutely you can engage not. with things on a on a a purely aesthetic level and think mm. that looks lovely. I really enjoy that. But um, mm. when you do go a little bit deeper, as I did, you know, when I was researching this show, I think you do appreciate so much more the story behind what's going on. And yeah, you 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 kind of get his trajectory through through the painting, which is such a beautiful thing to think about. One of the things that I found really interesting when I was doing my research is kind of the existential 
angle with which van gogh paints Mm. um you know he wrote about existing in another dimension after death and he kind of associated this dimension with the night sky you know he wrote hope is in the stars but he was quick to point out that earth is a planet too and consequently a star or a celestial orb so he was kind of adamant the starry night was not a return to the romantic or to religious Mm -hmm. ideas but we could counter this by saying that van gogh was trying to prove the existence of hope in life that's kind of a romantic ideal in itself Mm -hmm. and it seems to be the kind of painting that's constantly doubling back on itself you know it rejects an easily definable interpretation because aesthetically it's so joyous but then you've got Mm -hmm. the context of its creation which we touched upon that kind of shrouds it in sorrow and it is a representation of the infinite but also the infinite that exists within earth if we're Mm -hmm. to believe van gogh so Is this kind of what you love about it? That there's so much juxtaposition lurking in literally every (laughs) brushstroke? Absolutely. It's a painting Mm. that I feel you could write books and books and books on it. And you probably still wouldn't ever come to a conclusion. Because Mm. as you said, there are so many contradictions in it. On the one hand, you have this joyous night sky that seems almost otherworldly. And that seems to represent all these bodies and beings that are beyond our comprehension in the way he's painted the brush strokes it just looks otherworldly but on the other hand he so firmly believes that that's just our world and he clearly sees our world as something that's beautiful through his paintings he the fact that he did so many landscapes he just highlights the beauty in the everyday and like for him this could have just been the night sky that he Mm -hmm. saw and I just think there are so many ways you can look at it and you can bring in all these ideas in like from the romantics you can bring in all these ideas of theology religion Mm -hmm. and I think that's what makes a good painting how it can just be a beautiful painting and you can go into all these different ideas of the context behind it, the artist's intention, the audience's inference of what's going on. Mm. And you can get all these deep meanings out of it. But it's also just a good painting. Yeah, it's also <laughs> nice to look at. It's also <laughs> lovely. And I think mm. a lot of time people people strive to find meaning in everything. Mm. And people want there to be a purpose behind things and people want there to be People want to look at Starry Night and see what Van Gogh meant. They want to look at Starry Night and see how his mind worked. And I think sometimes it's okay for a painting to just be a painting. And Mm. I think it's okay for it to be a beautiful painting that was just how one man saw the sky. Yes, and also (laughs) that idea that a lot of people were trying to take really big existential Mm. themes from it. And Mm. he's sitting there insisting no it's everything that we need is within the earth and Mm -hmm. i've painted it and and that's in the sky Mm -hmm. you know everything that that needs to be said that needs to be pondered on Mm -hmm. that needs to be thought about because obviously you know there were so many ideas flying around about Mm -hmm. the world um at this point in in history everything that needs to be thought about or Mm. pondered about or appreciated is already here it's in the sky and and it's ours um i just think that's so lovely and i Mm -hmm. i do think that's one of those kind of self-reflexive things about Mm. art as a medium is that 
And it's just as simple as Van Gogh saying, this is how I see the night sky. And it Mm -hmm. is fantastical and it is amazing. That's that's just how I see it. Mm -hmm. And when you look at this painting, you can see how I see it too. So the other painting that you specified that I should look at is Wheat Filled with Crows. Mm -hmm. And it's a July 1890 painting by Goff. It's been cited by several critics as one of his greatest works. And it depicts a dramatic, cloudy sky filled with crows over a wheat field, funnily enough. Mm -hmm. It is commonly believed that it was his last painting, but art historians are uncertain as to which painting is his last because no historical records exist Mm -hmm. however it's highly possible that it was painted in the last weeks of his life so the largely recognized themes of the painting symbolizing a sense of van gogh's life coming to an end and an overriding feeling of sorrow you know those are quite Mm -hmm. clearly there so jules michelet probably probably butchering that one as well (laughs) one of gogh's favorite authors wrote of crows they interest themselves in everything and observe everything Um, And the crows are kind of seen as being used by Van Gogh as a symbol of death and rebirth. Do you think there's more to this, though? Um, From my research, it seemed that Van Gogh was kind of particularly committed to his realistic artistic Mm -hmm. studies of nature and and just trying to capture some of the big ideas he was grappling with in the world around him. So Mm -hmm. do we think maybe we could view Van Gogh as the crow? This painting, whether it was his last one or not, was definitely painted at a time when he was going through a lot of turmoil, mental and emotional turmoil. Mm. Um, It was painted in the weeks before he killed himself. And I think that makes it very easy to look at this painting and go, oh, Van Gogh is the crows, he's the sky, he's the dark tone of it, he's put himself into the painting. But as you said, he was committed to painting realism in terms of he was committing on painting what he saw. So many of his paintings were the views outside of his window, the views outside of his house, the views outside of the asylum. Um, When I first saw this painting, I definitely, without knowing the background of it, looked at it and went, this is a sad painting. Something Mm. about this feels inherently sad and inherently sombre. You can see that in the colours, the dark, like, brooding colour of the sky. The crows are always ominous when you see crows somewhere. But For some reason, they just are, aren't they? They are. (laughs) But the way he'd painted it, I immediately looked at it and just felt, this is sad. And then I found out more about it and I was like, oh, yes you can see where that came from. Even if it wasn't intentional in him putting it into the painting, it was there. And I think that's Mm. almost like when you're a creative, it's almost like you can't help but put yourself into your work. You can't Mm. help but leave traces of yourself there. Mm. And whether Van Gogh intended this to be a sad, sombre reflection on his life and his current mental state, that's how people view it because of the context. And he might not have meant that. But that's how we see it. And that's the inherent feeling you get from it. Mm. Well, actually, I was going to ask you if mm. that was the, the kind of the first thing that you that you mm. took from it. And I'm just I'm interested to know how you kind of reconciled the feeling that the painting was giving you mm. with not having any idea around the context of it. Because mm. I suppose <laughs> when you're engaging with art on like a very aesthetic level, mm. yeah, you can look at it and think that's really sad mm. um, and not have any idea that it was about the end of his life so I was just wondering what sort of things it made you feel when you saw it and how you kind of reconciled that with maybe 
other paintings of his if you'd mm. been exposed to other works that he'd done before mm. i think for me it can be put in most direct contrast with the sunflowers which i looked mm-hmm. at and went this is a happy painting i like this painting it's happy i like the sunflowers and the yellow <laughs> and the, how pretty it is and i loved I like it flowers yeah <laughs> whereas this and there are some other landscape who well of his that just have an inherently happier feeling and with this one I think knowing the context of course makes it feel sadder but it also almost like justified that sad feeling I'd gotten in the first place and I think Mm. you can see you can see in his work how the colours change the colour usage changes I won't claim to be an expert on him and the colour theory and colour palettes and everything but towards the end of his life you do see a lot more darker and starker colours used and I think this painting the yellow he uses isn't the same soft yellow as you've seen before it's quite a harsh yellow the mm. dark of the sky and the crows i think he'd painted wheat fields before yeah. in his, in his um, collections hadn't he mm. just not like this no so i think there's quite a, a stark contrast in tone absolutely it is a painting that he had done many times in terms of the subject but i think for whatever reason, whether intentional or not, his emotions at the time and his mental state clawed their way into the painting, whether mm. that was meant to be or not. And I think you can't look at this painting without the context. It's not something you can divorce and look at on its own. I think mm. in order to understand it, you have to look at when it was made. And it's really interesting, actually, that you you picked up on kind of the main draw of the painting for you not being what was being painted mm. but more what you could see kind of intruding on the painting yeah um, and I think that's kind of that's highlighted by the fact that he'd painted the same thing before but then yeah. when you see how different it looks you're much more aware of the emotional shift and the the kind of the tonal change in that um, I think it's really clever that he's managed to do that and it's not yeah. something that I would have I would have considered in art because I suppose when I look at art I'm kind of primarily engaging with what's there rather Mm. than thinking about the emotions and things like that behind it which you know might be a little short-sighted of me but it's really interesting that doing that research has kind of highlighted to me how much the emotion bleeds into the painting and it's Mm. it's much easier to see why you love it so much when you're (laughs) when you're thinking about those sorts of things. Has this always been one of your favourite Van Gogh works or did you find it through other art pieces of his? So I found this one. I had always liked, as I said, always liked Surrey Night, always liked the sunflowers. And then Van Gogh seemed to have almost a renaissance a few years ago. It kind of re-sparked this interest. Seeing all this sudden interest in Van Gogh kind of almost reignited this desire to look more into him outside of his starry night sunflowers Mm self-portraits kind of thing and that was when i found that one and at the same time i discovered um his letters to his brother which are gorgeously written and wonderful to read and i feel like i need to read his letters i would highly recommend it he has some Mm. gorgeous writing um so i was discovering this artist who i was like absolutely coming to love and then found this painting that had this inherent sadness to it at the same time and the two now kind of almost linked in my brain (laughs) that's really interesting because you know when I when I did go away and look at them 
there did seem to be a very obvious light and shade there and I wondered if that was partly why you chose them or partly why you're drawn to them Mm -hmm. and I think the fact that you discovered all three at the same time Mm. you know sometimes when you look at art you can kind of get a very fixed idea about the artist because Mm. of what you see and if you only engage with Van Gogh's sunflowers or his starry Mm. night you know and then you know the bare bones of the details about his life can be very easy to assume things and assume that he lived life one particular way but when you discover all of those things at the same time you get a very well-rounded view of Mm -hmm. someone and you can really see where life spills into art and art spills into life and Mm -hmm. the two kind of bleed into one another constantly which yeah I suppose is so much more relatable for us because we're we're used to experiencing that kind of relationship with the art that we love and the art that we make as well absolutely (laughs) van gogh is such an evocative artist anyway and i was familiar with starry night of course as well as his sunflower works um and also a little bit of the background information of his eventually rather tragic life Mm -hmm. however i feel like i've never really taken the time to delve properly into what the works mean you know there is Mm -hmm. for sure value in appreciating art on a purely aesthetic level Um, But I've always been someone who comes away from art galleries with a sense of wanting, you know, not content to rely Mm. on my own interpretation of the pieces. So it was a real joy to get to look at the context of both works in greater detail and see a bit more of Van Gogh in the Mm -hmm. pieces, Um, but also not a Van Gogh because he wouldn't have really wanted me to do that. So. So your final choice for today's show is a song, which mm-hmm. is another first for us on this show. I'm full of firsts. What can I you say? You are full of firsts. <laughs> I've had artists and albums and even concert tours aplenty, but um, I've never had a singular song, so I'm very mm-hmm. excited. And it's I Want to Get Better by Bleachers. So mm-hmm. it's a song by American indie pop band Bleachers. It was written and produced by the frontman Jack Antonoff and John Hill. It was the lead single on their debut studio album Strange Desire and was released on February 17th, 2014. It topped the Billboard Alternative Songs chart and was the band's first number one single. So the song mixes cut-up piano notes and samples and in it Antonoff embodies a range of vocals and shouting as well. The song is an upbeat, ultimately optimistic ode to overcoming adversity and kind of despite echoes of poignancy and loss throughout it's a song that wouldn't be out of place at a party or in the end sequence of a coming of age film which are two of my favorite barometers for Mm -hmm. songs (laughs) um so this song is the first choice i've had so far in the series that i'm entirely familiar with um i'm a fan of bleachers independently and i want to get better has lurked in my spotify liked songs for about five years so i'm really interested to see what you take from it and how it's had a significant impact on your life so I suppose the first question I have to ask you is, how did you find this song and what is it about it that makes it so special to you? So I found this song, and I hate that I'm admitting this on a public platform, but I found (laughs) this song on Tumblr in 2014. On Tumblr. I'm just going to say that once more for everyone. She found it on (laughs) Tumblr. Listen, okay, in 2014, I was in a place in my life where it was what I needed to hear but I didn't know Mm. at the time. I heard this song as a snippet. Someone had reblogged it. That was what you... Yeah, it was called reblogging. I had to think for a minute. Be like, what was it called? Don't pretend you don't know what it is. (laughs) You know. 
<laughs> Honestly. No, um, someone had re-blogged like, a snippet of it and I listened to it and I was immediately... I hadn't heard music like it before. I had been very mm. strictly top 40 before then. If it wasn't Black Eyed Peas and Katy Perry, I didn't really want to know before then. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard this song, but I'd never heard anything like it before. So, of course, I went to YouTube and downloaded it. The MP turned into an MP3, you know, the old mm-hmm. how we used to do it before, because I didn't have Spotify then. And I just remember lying on my bed in my dorm and just listening to it on repeat. And I, at the time, couldn't really describe the way I felt about it. I just remember feeling such a connection with the lyrics in a way that I'd never felt to another song before. And I'm sure this is not a singular thing. I think this is probably quite a universal feeling for a lot of people who discovered that song at a certain time in their life. The Mm -hmm. refrain of, I want to get better, was something that I think a lot of people can relate to when they find it um it's interesting actually looking back because at the time I did not yet know that I was suffering from something that I would later get diagnosed with when I was 20 and this diagnosis before it happened before I got diagnosed a lot of things that I felt in my life can now be attributed to that and All I remember feeling at the time was hearing this, I want to get better. And it was like someone was speaking what I had in my heart. It was this idea of, I want to get better. I was a young teenager. I think I was 15 or 16. And I was just starting to grapple with anxiety and depression. And my friends were starting to grapple with those things. And this almost joyous cry of I want to get better really hit home with me Mm. and the way Jack Antonoff sings the song you can't help but feel uplifted but some of the Mm. lyrics when you look at them individually are almost painful there's one line in particular um, I put a bullet where I should have put a helmet and I remember just hearing that line and it was like almost like a gut punch of a line Mm. and particularly listening now and looking back on it it was like oh wow that's a Mm. that is a powerful line it's almost it's almost jarring it's like this mix of of positivity but then when you go deeper into the Mm. the lyrics you know there's some really dark stuff there and I think it's really interesting because for a while when I first found that song it was something that I would sing along to and you you sing the words but you don't actually mm. kind of register what you're saying mm. so you would quite happily sing along to something like I put a bullet where I should have put a helmet and not actually take the time to think about what those words mean mm. and actually there's a lot of sorrow there a lot of mm. sadness lurking in those words um, and I think it's really interesting how how songs can do that sometimes mm. um so it is one of those songs that's quite dichotomous in nature because Antonoff has said quite a lot publicly that, you know, it's a reflection of his life and he writes about a lot of the struggles that he's been through within mm-hmm. that song. Um, I wanted to know if you kind of, when you listen to it now, do you still take those largely positive themes from it or do you think more about the context of the lyrics or the context of your own life maybe because you're a lot older now mm-hmm. than you were when you first found it? Absolutely. I think the way I view the song has definitely changed. And I think I'll always be grateful that I found it when I did. Because as a as a young depressed teenager, 
hearing I'm standing screaming at myself I want to get better that idea of someone being like no you are going to get better and wanting willing yourself to overcome this thing was something that I really needed to hear at the time and so looking back on it I have a real fondness for the song because luckily I am not in that place I was when I was younger I can look back at it and I can see the beautiful songwriting and the amazing musicality of it and appreciate it on a perhaps more technical level whereas when I was younger and first listening to it it was very much a purely emotional thing I Mm. listened to it because of how I connected with the lyrics and I think that I previously definitely focused on that idea of wanting to get better but not being able to and like at the time when I first started listening to it I want to get better was almost a futile thing being like I want to get better but I can't and now listening to it that's not what I see at all it's Mm. I want to get better so I will this song meant a lot to me then and it still means a lot to me now and Mm. I think it's okay for your perspective of a song to change and how you interpret a song to change as I said I thought it was a very sad song when I was younger and I connected to it and now I feel like it's a really positive song it was a message I needed to hear when I was younger and I think it's still a message I need to hear now to be like Mm. you can and will get better um I'll also be grateful to it for introducing me to a new side of music and introducing me to a genre that I hadn't explored before. Mm. And yeah, it was just a really awesome way to guide me into a new genre of music whilst also being a song that I connected with on such a personal level. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that I love talking about music so much on this show. I say it all the time, but it is true. (laughs) Um, It's because it's such a useful way quite selfishly for a Mm. person to kind of track their own trajectory Mm. um and you can return to a song and it reminds you of a very specific time in your life Mm -hmm. when you felt a certain way and you can kind of cast a new light on the song Mm. through how you feel now and what it does for you now and in that way your relationship with the song never ends really it just Mm. it just changes and it just evolves as you have changed and evolved and i feel like music is such a good ear marker for that Mm. I think like for example with I want to get better it's not a song I listen to every day it's not a song Mm. that I have like in every single playlist but it's a song that when I do listen to it it means so much and I always get taken back to being 15 and thinking everything was the worst it could possibly be and not realizing that it does get it's so cliche to say that it does get better but it does get better and, and it's one of those things that when somebody says that to you, you absolutely hate hearing. But it yeah. is true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think why this one connected for with me so much is because they said, rather than it gets better, it's I want to get better. And it was putting the emphasis and it changed it. Um, mm. As I said, I still misinterpreted it because I still found it sad at the time. But again, it was just that one little thing of changing the emphasis from it gets better to I want to get better. It also kind of gives you a sense of autonomy when you're listening yeah. to it. And I suppose if you found it when you were a teenager, you know, you're still at that age, you're very much still figuring out who you are. And yeah. it can be a time in your life when you feel like there isn't much autonomy at all. So to hear that kind of validated mm. in a song, I mm. want to get better. This is my story. Um, yeah, it's it's quite affirming and, and it can feel quite powerful. 
it can contribute a lot to character development and and kind of feeling stronger within yourself which Mm -hmm. which I love so you mentioned that it's not really a song that you return to every day anymore Mm. um when would you listen to this song specifically what do you what do you kind of go to it for I go to this song when either when I'm feeling nostalgic and Mm. because it does make me want to go back to 15 year old Izzy I'm gonna give her a hug Mm. and just be like you're okay you're okay yeah and the best way I can describe it is the best way to listen to this song is when you're a little bit tipsy with friends. You're outside on a summer's night and it's the kind of temperature where it's a little bit cold, but you can still be outside in a t-shirt kind of thing. And it's got to the point of the night that no one's really talking because everyone's just happy, slightly tipsy silence. That is what that is what this song makes me feel like this time, that time is. It takes me to... The feeling I get from that song is the same feeling you get in that moment of just happy contentment. Mm. And it's the kind of feeling where you don't necessarily have anything to say in the moment, mm. so the song says it for you. Exactly. Mm. It says everything that I think needed to be said without me having to say it, and it just now reminds me of just being happy with friends. It's lovely that you've touched on how much the relationship has changed and moved with with the song because I was really wondering when you when you sent me your picks you know what made you choose a singular song over mm. something with more musical content perhaps like mm. an album is it because it encapsulates all of those different feelings for you or is it something else absolutely I think like I think it would have been really easy to pick an album like you can have no skip albums like mm-hmm. interestingly Jack Antonoff is the producer on my current favourite albums Folklore and Evermore so mm-hmm. clearly me and Jack Antonoff just get on really well but <laughs> <laughs> this one song for me had been with me for so long and had meant so many different things and had evolved with me and my interpretation of it that it deserved to be one thing on its own don't get me wrong i have so many favorite others like so many other songs i love and so many albums that i love but this one song in particular one of the things you said about art histories is what's molded you and what's stayed with you and for me it's just this one song so we've talked about the lyrics and obviously lyrically this song is so intelligent you know it's completely Mm. packed with clever imagery and allusions to specific life events that keep the words vague enough to feel relevant to anyone listening but also kind of definitely refer to specific parts of Antonov's life Mm -hmm. um I was wondering are there any lyrics that you particularly connect with in the song that have stuck with you I know we've spoken about a couple but are there any others the first lyric I can obviously you've got um I put a bullet where I should have put a helmet and I'm standing Mm. at the interstate screaming at myself hey I want to get better but um, there are a couple of others that definitely stood out to me. Um, one comes in the final verse where he sings, woke up this morning, early, this morning early before my family from this dream where she was trying to show me how a life can move from the darkness, she said, to get better. And mm. then that goes into the, so I put a bullet where I should have put a helmet and crashed my car. But to me, that's not, that is what I was talking about earlier with the life is going to get better and move out of this darkness. You just have to put the darkness behind you. And mm-hmm. when he's saying, I put a bullet where I should have put a helmet, he's not talking about very dark things. He's talking about 
separating himself from that darkness in my mind i could, cannot tell you what he was thinking lyrically i do not know him personally mm. however much i would like to <laughs> um definitely that one and then when i was younger the lyric i didn't know i was lonely till i saw your face That's i saw one it i've got written down here mm-hmm. yeah i saw when i was younger i saw it was romantic and as a teenager who was desperate to be loved whether that was platonically romantically who just wanted people to like see her that m- lyric really hit home because it was like, i didn't know i was lonely until i saw your face and the idea that you meet someone and you realize how alone you've been really hit me now mm. i don't see it as a romantic thing at all i see mm. it as a platonic thing and about meeting the people in your life who yeah you connect with the most i completely divorce it from a romantic aspect yeah Mm. and it's it's those two lyrics are ones that i've picked out you know i didn't know i was lonely till i saw your face and i didn't know i was broken till i wanted to change Mm. because they're lyrics that can mean so much to you in a moment of darkness but obviously Mm. now if you're in a much kind of stronger place and you feel like you have a bit more of a sense of autonomy and you know that you are loved and you know that you're appreciated and you can look mm. back on those and think wow I, I didn't know I was lonely yeah. until I saw your face and and recall in your mind all the people that have changed you and shaped you and that you love and I didn't know I was broken till I wanted to change you know from mm. a more resilient perspective I suppose thinking yeah. at that point I didn't know I was broken and then I wanted to change mm. and I did and it doesn't mean that I'm fixed it doesn't mean that i'm quote unquote better um because mm. i think that's a slightly problematic way of, of thinking about it but it does mean that if i have a crack in the future um i know that i can seek the help because i have mm. the power to do so now exactly um, it highlights the all-encompassing nature of the song and that mm. those words could be applicable to any kind of situation and i think it does make so much sense that you still love it now mm. just as much as you did then but in a different way because in the same way that it can echo back to you the sadness and the frustration that you feel it can also reflect the growth and the change that you've experienced which is such a magical thing for a song to do yeah and like I will always associate this song with two people who helped me see that I needed to get help as well and particularly that line, like you said, I didn't know I was broken until I wanted to change. You can't get mm. your, you can't get help until you're ready to accept help. And I was incredibly lucky that I had a couple of people who refused to leave my side until I got <laughs> help. And I'm sure they know who they are. But it's that idea that once you are willing to accept help, that's when the healing can start. People can come and go in your life people can mean a lot to you at one time and they can still mean a lot to you throughout your life even if you don't necessarily talk to them on the same daily basis that you did and I firmly believe that people like come into your life for a reason and mm, for sure they will always mean just be- like they will always mean the world to me like these people will always mean the world to me and I'll always associate them with this song I love that you've championed this song not only as a love letter to yourself and the growth that you've experienced and the change but to the people around you as well Mm -hmm. um i think that's such a lovely way of looking at it so we've had two firsts on the show today our first literature pick which was really exciting for me and my first delve into researching traditional art for the show which seems odd given that it's literally called 
art histories. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the mediums that you've picked today, um, because books seem to be so integral to your being. So mm-hmm. it's not a huge surprise to me that you picked one. Um, but what about art and music? You know, how do those two work in tandem with your central passion for literature? I think that all art is intrinsically linked. I think that art, be that paintings, music, writing, theatre, so many things, they're all linked together by the same passion for storytelling. Mm. Um, Each of these things to me tell a story, whether it's um, Van Gogh's paintings and how you can see the story of his life etched into the canvases, whether it's I want to get better and how my own story is reflected in that but also Jack Antonoff's story and how he's written his life into the lyrics and the music whether it's Addie LaRue and her story and how Mm -hmm. V.E. Schwab has crafted this gorgeous narrative they're all intrinsically storytelling and to me that's what good art is and art is something that takes you on a journey or shows you a journey or inspires a journey and all of these things for me were integral in one part of my journey so I think I'm going to ask a question that you're probably going to dislike because you've just mentioned how much these three picks are all intrinsic to you but if you had to recommend one of these three choices to somebody listening right now um which would it be and why you can't say this, but I'm pulling a face right now. I'm. <laughs> um, I think it's tricky because I would say if you want to listen to a song that take that, no matter who you are, will be tinged with some sort of nostalgia, I would say listen to "I Want to Get Better." I would say if you are interested in any sort of art and art theory and just finding out more about this wonderful man I would say Van Gogh and I would say if you want a good story that connects to you on so many human levels I would say check out Addie LaRue I could justify all of these um however since you're gonna make me pick one (laughs) sorry (laughs) I would say (laughs) I would highly 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 recommend that everyone check out The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue because Mm. since I've read this book in October it's the most recent of my picks yeah. that it is possibly one of the most fundamental because I think I connected with it on such a deep level as I said I want to t- I want to hold it in my heart forever because I love it so much I've got four copies of this book literally I <laughs> I do not need more copies of this book but it means so much to me and I think it's a masterclass in storytelling. I think it's a masterclass in language. And there will be there will be some people who don't like it. There will be some people who will say it's too flowery. It doesn't really have much action. Because it doesn't. It's not really an action book. There's not a big monster to overcome. There's not a big battle at the end. There's not a journey. It's not an action book. It's a character study more than anything. It's a character study of Addie and it's a character study of Henry and it's a character study of Luke. And I think if you want to read something that gets to the heart of what it means to be human, in my view, I would recommend checking out The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Also because I will probably bully people into reading it because I love it so much. So I will just annoy (laughs) you. Well, you you. started with me, you know. Yeah. 
the amount of people who I've told to read this book is ridiculous. I think I'm probably <laughs> I'm probably responsible for half of all its sales because I just every time I see someone I'm like, have you read Ali Larue? Have you read Ali Larue? You should read Ali Larue. <laughs> oh so goodness. I would have to go with Addy. Mm. Izzy, this show has been a true joy in every sense of the word. I've travelled through time, art and found a kindred spirit in Addie LaRue. I've seen stars with the incomparable works of Van Gogh and reframed my existing love for bleachers through my love for you. Thank you for giving up your time to chat to me today. I miss and love you more than words can express. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. I'm so glad I get to gush about things I love. (laughs) And that brings us to the end of episode three. I hope you loved Izzy as much as I do. She's just incredible. I'll be back next week with a brand new show and a brand new guest. Thanks for listening.